Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I really hope you enjoyed the first part of my chat with Laura Massaro, and part two is about to begin. But some of the topics we go a little bit deeper on is around softening the mental approach and how she was able to do this effectively. And that's something that I notice a lot with some of the players I'm working with about perfectionism and training really hard and expecting the results and, you know, almost being owed the result. And we talk about how she was able to soften that mental approach and how this also built her self-belief and her self-esteem. And she highlighted brilliantly with a few funny stories of the tour and what she was doing to soften the mental approach. So I think you'll definitely enjoy that. 
We have a real in-depth look at the Enneagram, the personality type indicator that was a massive part of her success she believes in getting her to understand herself and how this all linked up and how then she worked with her sports psychologist taking big deep looks at this we touch on a bit of hypnosis we talk about visualizations and actually how she wasn't um, using visualizations massively in her career but part of it was with injury rehabilitation and we discuss a few little things around that and and my few little sense in regard to what I think visualizations are useful now. We unfortunately didn't get into a few things around goal setting and how to prepare mentally for match play because again there was just so much good to talk about. She shares a really cool story with Mark Campbell her personal trainer or or physical trainer uh, and how he was able to trick her into into achieving something quite big and how this actually had a, a rollover and a spillover effect into some of her performances and we also take a look more at her upcoming book and a big part of releasing these podcasts at these times is to give all of you a call to arms, a call to action to go and buy the book. It, for me, it sounds absolutely brilliant and I cannot wait to order it. As soon as the pre-orders come out, I am jumping all over that because she gives her insights into the amount of attention to detail she's put into this book and how it's been a massive passion project of hers. And if her career and trajectory of what she's done is anything to go by, I think this book is just going to be a wonderful, insightful, really, you know, deep experience into Laura, who she is, her character traits. And I think it's only going to be a massive success. And I, for one, am massively looking forward to it. So without further ado, please enjoy the second part of my conversation with Laura Masara. So something that you you talked about on um, part one of the podcast was this idea about softening your mental approach. And a few people I've been working with have really resonated to to that idea where you talked about softening your mental approach. Can we have a talk on this? And can you expand what that was like for you and, and how that really impacted your your career? And, and what, what, what part of the career were you in when you had to do that? Yeah, I think softening, softening off of the mentality was probably cutting yourself a little bit of slack isn't it and making sure that you're um giving yourself a little bit of a break um, I think we talked a lot about the training the mindset you know trying to hit every single part of what it means to be a professional athlete and then wanting to ex well you know having this expectation to win basically and you know I deserve more because of this and it's particularly hard when you see players around your level or age not doing something as professionally as you are, but getting better results because maybe they're a bet, you know, a better player at the time. And and that's the thing, isn't it? Mindset is one part of a lot of things. And so trying to soften off and cut, forgive yourself, cut yourself a little bit of slack. I remember, you know, having a conversation with Danny um, once over dinner and he would say, if you take someone like Amma Shabana, who, plays like it means nothing when it means everything how how do you get that mindset and we had a really deep conversation about that that just that one line how do you play like it means nothing when it means everything I mean that's probably the key to the whole mindset isn't it I've just watched the Aussie Open um, tennis so you know looking back on some of those matches in tennis is bizarre all the tennis matches you see someone can be so far on top and be the best player by a mile and world number one and they lose and you know it gets to everybody and it's how do you play 
yeah when when it means everything um and how do you get that freedom and I think that's that's the ultimate goal of mindset is you know a lot of it is getting out of your own way isn't it getting out of what does that (laughs) it's just words what does that mean getting out of your own way yeah, and that's exactly what I was, I was, I was going to try bring it to. Um, just before I get to that point, uh, I, I use a, an interesting quote from Sean White, you know, X Games dude who, who nailed this one move that they thought was impossible to win the Olympic gold. And he, he says, being in the zone is about being fully immersed and focused on what you're doing, but also not caring. And, and it sounds like the Shivana thing. He was like, he's like, yes, I'm there. I'm in the moment. But actually, at a point, I don't care. I just, I just take the reins off and go with it. So maybe linked to that conversation you had with Danny around the dinner table, what specific examples did you try and do to then soften the mental approach? Was there a dedicated way you trained it? Or did you just go in with a slightly different mindset to things? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's definitely getting out, of, getting out of your own way, meaning try not to take yourself too seriously and, and have those expectations. I mean, there's always an element of seriousness, professionalism. There's a fine line between professionalism and becoming very serious as a person. And mm. I guess when you say serious, you mean there's not a lot of fun there. There's not a lot of enjoyment there. I mean, you can be ser- you can be serious and have fun and enjoyment, and then you can be serious and you can be rigid. Can't, like there's a difference, isn't there, with the mindset, with how you go into practices. And I think the players that I've seen over the years, even though they 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 take it as an element of professionalism into the training without the heaviness of and the burden of seriousness, I have to do this because this will equal this. Mm-hmm. You do it because, you know, there's a flip and a switch of, I do it because I would really like that. And I guess that's another mind, that's another little, a little line as well, isn't it? I would really, we worked heavily on this. I would really like that, mm-hmm. but I don't need that. Oh, and that's a, that's a real difference because when you need it, mm. like Serena Williams trying to go for 24 or whatever it is, Grand Slams, she's played how many slams and can't get it. It's like she needs it, but she hasn't needed the 23 that have come before. She's just wanted them. Yeah. And so there's a playfulness, I think, that comes around wanting it, but not needing it. Because the minute you cross over from play, um, from that to that wanting it to needing it, the playfulness goes, I think. And then the seriousness comes and then the, that equals that. If I do that, that equals that. And it's life just doesn't work like that. If anything, it actually puts you down on your ass. <laughs> no, no, I completely get that. I think it's, you've hit on such an interesting topic there because let's, let's assume, and again, maybe hopefully you're not assuming too much. You're always going to give your utter best. You're being a professional. You, your benchmarks are there. Your, your behaviors, your actions are here. So that's not the question. You don't need to push yourself harder to, to raise those. That is almost like the given. It's, it is that, that you said, that softening, that maybe that flexing, that enjoying around that mental approach. Am I correct in saying that? Because I think the yeah. idea of, of there the is, you're here, and, and, and before we started recording, I'm talking about some of the players I'm working with who have that. They, 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 they're always going to turn up for training. They're always going to go to the gym. They always do everything above and beyond. So that's not what's in question. It's not a motivation thing. It's actually something slightly different. So what do you think on that? Yeah, look, the the one thing that I could never fault myself for, for a win or a loss was lack of effort. Um, and we get to the point where I'm with my coaches and the people that I'm working with. And, and after a match, they sit, us da- they sit me down and they go, look, we know you tried. It's a given. 
That's not the point here anymore, is it? It's how do you get a better level out? We know that you've got a better level than that. So something is stopping you getting that level out. Mm -hmm. And that's where the seriousness in practice becomes, um, I I don't know quite how to say it, but I guess when you've got that seriousness in practice, you can only ever hope to then just take that seriousness on the match court. And then, and then tightness comes, nerve comes, flow doesn't, isn't there. And, you know, I wasn't the most creative of flamboyant players, but I think when I was at my best, you could really see a lot of flow Mm -hmm. and a lot of, you know, a lot of people say my movement was quite graceful. Mm -hmm. Robbo, Robbo, I remember on a national squad saying to me, you ghost exactly how you play. So I watch, I watch you ghost and you could have a ball there the way you move. And that for me, it was a huge compliment because that meant that what I was doing on the practice court in the ghosting was exactly what I wanted to do on the match court. Whereas sometimes when you see people ghosting, you're like, what is that? (laughs) Is that even a squash movement? I mean, we're talking obviously probably more amateurs there, but if you can't ghost how you want to play, then you, then obviously there's an issue there. And so it's linking the practice in. And I guess it's always nice to relate to a story, but actually I was thinking about this before our chat today and there, there came a point in my career and I think I can remember it. It was, it was Dubai. And I think it was the first First year World Series Finals 2016, um, 26, 2016, I think. And it was the final and it had been Ramadan all week. My matches had finished after midnight, most nights. I barely made bre- I hadn't made breakfast all week. We were just, as everyone knows, that's a big prize pot. So it's no issue getting breakfast delivered to your room every morning. Get up about 11, um, have breakfast in the room, go for a late practice. Matches were always after 10 p.m. I was literally kind of on the wrong way around. Mm. And I played really well all week. Um, And it was actually funny because maybe we could talk about this in terms of going back to it, but I'd actually lost in the final of the World Championships to Noor Shabini about, I don't know, three, three, four weeks before. And Danny actually said to me, um, what are you going to do on the back of this result? You've got World Series finals in three or four weeks. You can't turn up there and want to win. If you mm-hmm. turn up there and want to win, the work starts now. We're talking a, you know, a few days a week after a world final loss from 2-0 up, by the way, talking about mm-hmm. mental strength. Lost my world number one spot. Lost the Norshabini won her first world title. She won a car as well as the prize money. Wow. It was like talk about stood on the sidewall from two nil up with like wow. you know if someone punch you in the face. <laughs> and we can talk about that as a separate thing, but I actually really felt like I didn't believe I could win that final for various reasons. Not, and this is where belief is such a strange thing because I didn't believe I couldn't beat Shabini, but it had so much more wrapped up in that event, that final, that being world number one losing my world number one spot, all that. So I go, so then I think that's relevant when I fast forward to a month later and I'm presented with World Series finals, top eight in the world. My group is Nicole David, Amanda Sobe, Goha maybe, Mm -hmm. make the semi, play Shabini, win, revenge my loss from a few weeks ago, whole point. And And I'm now preparing for the final against Waneem. And I'm in my I'm in my hotel room and the car the car journey to the venue is like, you know, five minutes, private car, go down, get one whenever you want. It's final anyway. There's only two players, four players with the men. So I'm in my hotel room and I'm I'm strangely, weirdly meant I don't know if this even links into the mindset. Maybe it's a girl thing. I decide that I'm gonna French plait my hair. 
I, oh. I don't know why. Um, I think I'd played around with my hair all week, but from a mindset perspective, it felt like it looked nice. And I had this cool dress, this pink dress that I wore on this pink court. And I just was feeling good. And I put the dress on and I was all ready to go down and get my coffee and do my pre-match notes. And I had a bit of music on in the room. And all of a sudden, I just thought, like, I just felt like dancing. And I'm like, okay. I'm all like jigging along. And I don't dance. I'm not really that sort of person. There's no one in the room. Danny's gone. I'm French plaiting my hair, making sure I've got mirrors, checking it all looks good behind and all a lot. And there's, it's never, it never happened before. Um, but I just decided I wanted to dance. Now, when we talk about um, seriousness, that is not what you do before a World Series final. Final. <laughs> you take it seriously. You get your headphones on. You put your hair in a ponytail. You put your dress on. You don't care what you look like. You think about your game plan and you get down to the court. Yeah. But something in me that day was just like, I've done so well. From where I was two weeks ago, from losing a World Championship final from 2-0 up to the swing effect of you know, playing on Ramadan, getting, getting, getting late every night, playing really well all week, bouncing back, being in the final and now feeling it's not the dancing that is the key here. It's what mood I must've been in to feel like that, to feel like I wanted to kind of just be free. And so obviously you don't know how that's going to go. I'm generally quite a serious professional player. I'm like, this could be a nightmare. I could, (laughs) this could be totally the wrong mood for me. But then from there, we go to the court. I do my normal pre-match routine. I'm still feeling kind of loose and a bit like, you know, free in my warm-up, even when I'm at the court. And I, I'm pretty sure I definitely would have had more lightness to my warm-up and was feeling pretty good. Went on the court, had an absolute battle with Raneem and probably had, had no right to win, but managed to get over the line and win, I think, you know, in five. I think I might have saved a match ball or was down in the fourth and came off. And from that point on, I guess that's where belief goes is that I realized maybe that the mindset that I had been in before maybe wasn't the right way for me to approach matches maybe there was a different way to approach matches a softness a playfulness a Mm -hmm. less serious Laura that could step on the court and then be serious Laura like don't get there was nothing about me when I stepped on the court that wanted to dance (laughs) I wanted to kill Raneem and win that match and so you, you would never have noticed a difference but what it did I think was create a freedom and a softening within me that allowed me to step on the court and then go after what I wanted, if I'm making sense there. Oh, ab- absolute. Like, you know, the way you, you, you link a story in and bring it to life is just, is, is massively inspiring. There's probably like eight rabbit holes I could go down with. <laughs> so let me, let me try and kind of pick where I want to go. So first thing that comes to mind when you did that, did you then exhibit any more of that playfulness in future preparations then? What, what happened there? Yeah, well, of course. So then the belief changes, doesn't it? Mm. The belief changes that Laura, serious player, professional game plan has to be executed, needs to prepare properly and be serious before the match, then changes to, you know, Laura can be, I can be, don't want to talk about myself in the third person, but I can be playful, giddy, excited, Mm. happy, even when I'm a bit nervous. And and this, and it tended to happen 
more in semi-finals and finals going forward because that's when the lightness really is there let's be honest it's you I'm not just saying like guys you know you can fake this in the first round when you've got the weight of the world in pressure on you of course like you're not going to feel like playing Emily Whitlock first round like dancing because you're free as a bird and it doesn't matter if you lose but there's something when you go into a final or a semi-final playing the best in the world that's that you have to accept you could play the best that you could and still lose mm. so the best chance you've got is to play well how are you going to play well and that's a big big thing like how do you start to learn and understand how you perform at your best and so that day I realized maybe there was a chance that I could play well if I felt happy and felt good and felt like dancing and that's not something you can fake you can't mm. just decide to start dancing in your warm-up and because you know it doesn't feel good <laughs> if you don't feel like doing it so it's it's more it wasn't necessarily the dancing it was more the mindset that I felt like I had to be in to be able to dance and and do you know I don't I don't even call it dancing it was like a bum wiggle half the time <laughs> just shimmying across my bag or whatever and you know get a song on and it'd just be the song of the moment or song that I quite like listening to at the time and that that was it so yeah in answer to your question I then learned going forward that there was a different way to approach my seriousness mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing stuff there. And I love it. So we also want to explore, and it was maybe linked to my next question, two, maybe a two-part here, the, the idea about self-belief, and, and you've touched on that, that that's changed. But also looking at, and again, this is what I've maybe started to explore with, with a couple of people I'm working with, is almost this level of, of you want to be the best in the world, and you want to be the best person you want to be. And someone in particular I'm working with is, is talking about they always work on their weaknesses and, and, and they, so they, they, they're putting such a, an emphasis on going, I need to be better. So I need to work on my weaknesses. And along the way, they're not celebrating any of the small wins, even the smallest little things, not, not giving them any recognition. And I'm trying to reframe that a little bit talking about, you know what? Yes, we need to work on your weaknesses and improve those because they'll give you the big jumps, but winning is a habit. And we need to maybe cultivate this mindset of actually let's recognize some of those small wins along the way. So can you expand on that? The idea of, of does it link to the softening of the mental approach? Do you give yourself credit for some of those small wins and how does that link to self-belief as well? I know there's a long, lot of things to pack in there. What do you mean by small wins? Like little things that you do in training that are Um, successful? Yeah, this is a little bit linked more to the match. So for example, um, the players playing someone who would always beat them, but they'll get seven or eight points a game but they'll be more frustrated that they didn't win the game and be like, oh, well, I'm training hard. I need, I need to see results and, and, and success in, my, in, in winning the game. So I'm trying to get to going, actually, seven or eight points against someone who's above your level, let's actually recognize that that's a, that's a small little win. I'm not expecting them to jump out of bed and punch the air and be like, amazing, I'm, I'm on top of the world. But cultivating the mindset of going, there's little things along the way, little signposts. It could be training, but I'm I'm just focusing more on the match play at the moment. Um, does that make sense then? Yeah, I think I think the one thing to think about during actual match play is thinking about how how the technical stuff that you're working in is coming through in matches. I always remember DP saying to me when when I was working on something, he was always a little bit worried about working technically too close to matches. But he always used the example of Peter Nichol changing something quite big technically in his game and, and DP saying, oh, you know, I'm not really sure we should be messing around with this. It's like a week and a half before the British Open. And 
Pete Nicole was like, no, this, I need something to go with. I need something to focus on. And so it depends on the person hugely. And I was always relatively happy to work on stuff technically, but then appreciated that when I stepped on the match court, that needed to be boxed off, forgotten about and parked over there. And the one thing that I think I was quite good at maybe was working on something technically or a change, whatever it is in in a match. And that could be a mental change, worked a lot on my thought processes between rallies and things like that. And that can help. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to practice that in in practice as well, because people mm-hmm. will say like, you know, oh, if you want to change change what how you're thinking on the court then I just have to change how I'm thinking on the court and you you have to practice that the same way you practice a forehand drop shot so when you practice matches are you practicing your mentality and that's where I think I said in part one I was quite a good league player I was quite a good practice match players a lot of players that had never beaten me in the practice match because I was always practicing you know mindset of of actual match um match mentality Mm. so I would always practice the technical stuff, getting back to your question, where I would be on court, practice the technical work, solo it, practice it with Danny, practice it with DP, practice, 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 and then park it. And then I would look for one chance that that happened when I was on in the match court. I would be looking for one time where... I opened my racket face better or extended my fingers on the forehand drop or reached for the ball or threw my leg further or volleyed a ball that I wouldn't have done before. And it's one, it's just one at first because that's as slow as change happens. Mm -hmm. And then you come off the court and Danny will say, I saw it. Did you see it? And maybe he saw more than what I was seeing. Sometimes I think it happened. I think it happened and it didn't or vice versa. And then the next time you go on, you know, you've done it then. So I've got to do it again. I've got to do it two times, three times. And then, and then it starts to become more natural. So I think that when you talk about getting the small wins, the winning of the, the winning and the losing of the rally, when you're working on something technical becomes, you know, you know, if you can get that in your game, there's a chance you might win or beat that player or play better in the future, but you have to recognize that it's, it's seeping in slowly. Mm -hmm. There's a one, there's one time you do it, then there's two, then there's five, then there's 15, and then you're just doing it. And that's where you have to, you have to trust, trust in the process of the practice. And, but, but mainly you have to notice the one time first Mm -hmm. and give yourself credit for that. Yeah. That's that's really sound advice. And, and again, linking to the softening, did you possibly not recognize those wins at one point? And were you always looking at what I need to improve better in my weaknesses? Or were you always quite good at, at going, actually, I've done well there, I've worked on something and done it. So can you talk on that about how you started to cultivate those small wins in your mind? Yeah, I mean, early on in my career, like I touched upon before, there's, there's a, there was a really big element of me being able to do things in practice and setting a level and then not being able to get it out on the match court at all because of the nerves and the expectation. And I think that that softening that comes with it, that lack of that lack of seriousness and the playfulness that comes with that, that, that I just spoke about is one way that you can start to try to get some of that stuff into your match play. And there comes a time and there was so many matches where I would have sat down after a match and just been really disappointed with how I'd played and not necessarily because I've won or I've lost but because of not getting my best level out and so it's it's getting out of your own way mentally it's all well and good doing all of the training and all of the preparation if you're just going to put barriers up in your way to actually stop you getting that level out when you're on the match court and it's easy for me to say that that for me came from a little bit of softening off and a little bit of lack of seriousness and 
Um, that was because that was my default. But for somebody else, that might be being more serious. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. it might be being more, you know, playful or free. I mean, I, like people are so different, aren't they? Like Sarah Jane Perry, for example, can, you know, before she plays a match, she will be stood next to me chatting away. I mean, I turned <laughs> up in Hong Kong one year. I was going to coach her between games. She was playing Tesney turn up five minutes before she's going to go on. I'm Obviously, if it was me, I'd have headphones on, I'd be on a back court, I'd have my face on that said, don't talk to me because I'm in the zone or you're going to get punched. She just, I'm like sat down, you know, waiting to watch her play. And she goes, you all right? What are you doing? What have you been up to? I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> but I now know yeah, from playing so many matches with her for England that that's what she needs. She's not a massive warm-up. She does what she needs for her to perform at her best mm. um, and she also need, knows that the the type of mindset she needs to be in and she probably I'm assuming I've never spoke to her about it we just have a laugh that we're very different that she needs a bit of relaxation she needs maybe a little bit of distraction she needs calming down something to take her mind off it yeah who knows um, but it is a very, very different approach. And having played with her enough times for England now, you know that you can make, I mean, you make yourself available for someone like that. So mm. you, you go and just have a little mooch around the player's area when she's before she's going to play. And then you're there if she wants to talk. And if she doesn't, then she doesn't. But it's knowing yourself, I think, and then, mm. and then letting you people around you know that as well. Yeah, you're talking exactly my language here. And, and, and just maybe one more point on this, because um, that's going to link me really nicely into my next thing I want to talk about. You as a coach now, and you know, coming from obviously your amazing playing background career, maybe the most natural thing is to go, hey, this worked for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you as the player know about this. How have you maybe molded and flexed your coaching style to be able to accommodate your players? Can you think of any examples or how that's worked? Yeah, I mean, firstly, you have to probably get to know and understand the players that you're working with massively because you're absolutely right. Default was always, are you taking this seriously enough? Have you had a nap? Have you eaten right? Have you done this? Have you prepared? Have you done some video analysis? Have you written your goals down? Have you did it? It's just that would be my mindset. And obviously, the thinking back to the SJ example is one way to understand that not everybody is different. So when I've taken that into my coaching, the people that I'm working with generally are quite similar to me because they they generally, you seek out like-minded people a lot of the time. Right. However, DP was not like me at all. So <laughs> that, that flaws that theory. But the people that I'm working with, are, are I think you have to be anyway, but they're quite professional. They want to, you know, talk a lot. There's, a, there's always a, a very, a lot of tactics that go on and, I think that that's, that's fair to understand that side of it. And I can bring in a lot of my character and my understanding of the game through, you know, the players that I've played, which is a huge advantage. But then I've got to, as a coach, listen to the, what the player's saying to me and make suggestions and then maybe later follow up on whether those suggestions were actually done. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think if you if you make a suggestion to somebody that they should, you know, rest in their room and get a tactical plan together, and then they go out for a walk and get a coffee and, and, um, chill probably it's not, you, you have to, I have to understand as a coach that that's not them being unprofessional. That's mm -hmm. them doing what they need to do to stay relaxed and sitting in a room getting or getting tangled up about match preparation is potentially not what they want to do. 
So yeah, understanding the player and, and a conversation with that can help as well. How, how do you think that you best get your best performances out on court? How do you think you get your best? How do you think you prepare the best? And then that not only helps you understand the player, but it helps the player think about that themselves because maybe a lot of people don't actually know. Mm. And that's where a lot of conversation can come in. You know, a lot of conversation can then unlock a lot of issues, can't it? Sure. And and it sounds like there as well, you suggesting the player goes in their room and match preparation visualizes, but they go out for their coffee and walk around. And and you got to obviously deem that that's not being unprofessional, but it sounds like you've got to let the athlete explore different ways as well. And, and actually almost accidentally come up with things as well. Yes. You as a coach can maybe present things, but actually a part of it is the athlete walking through those, those doors themselves and discovering it along the way. I mean, I can't sit here and say to someone, you'll perform well if you dance before you match. <laughs> I'm sure there's I, something there, Laura. Come on. I firstly didn't that. even know it myself, though. 2016, yeah. we're talking. I mean, that's a long time into my career. That's, mm. you know, I turned pro in 2001. It was 2016 before I figured that out. So, yes, you have to make mistakes. You have to do it. Danny and I had a fun, we were talking about it before, about superstitions and where they come from and how strange they are because, generally it's some stupid thought process that goes if I win this game I promise I'll never drink coffee before my match again and then you win the game and you're like wow I'm not going to drink coffee again because it worked and then it's stuck with you and it's the most ridiculous thing ever and that dancing thing who knows whether that was going to work it's a leap of faith at the time whether you actually have to go for it and there's a fine line you say to a player go to your room do this or Quite often they'll ask me, I get obviously because I've been there, they go, what did you do? What should I do? And I make suggestions and then they'll see how I felt quite nervous. I felt like pent up. So then we suggest, okay, go out for a walk. And then you find out that they did three miles around Edinburgh Castle. And you go, (laughs) when we said a walk, we were maybe thinking, you know, out for lunch, maybe a little shop and sit on a bench and get back. So you figure it out by talking about it, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the most important thing. Yeah, well, that, this then links me exactly to where I think we want to take a bit of a deep dive in, in regard to personalities and 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 getting to know yourself. And and the more I'm going down this this route with players and having these conversations with yourself and others, it's just so evident that that success comes from the real deep knowing of yourself. So we talked in part one about enneagram, and we almost probably didn't give it enough uh, attention to detail. So. Are, are you keen to take a deep dive into Enneagram? Because a few people have asked me about it since they've heard as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's an amazing tool. Okay, let's uh, let's explore it. How, when did you do it? How did you do it? Recommendations for people? Because on my personal level, I want to explore it as well. So I'm, I'm here as a student at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the Enneagram was first introduced to me when I said in part one about doing the NLP course. And NLP in general is... Is, a, is something that would probably link in quite well. So the guy that I was working with um, and doing a lot of the NLP and I did the, the NLP course um, that, I, that I mentioned in part one, where I was starting to become aware of how everybody's mind is different and not just that, but how you can, you know, maybe shape your mind and improve your mind and make it stronger and start to understand yourself. And I do believe, you know, they say, don't they, that you, knowledge is a weapon sort of thing and you the more you know, the the more you know, the better you are. So I think that that com- becomes the same for your personality as well. And so rather than just 
thinking that you know who you are and you know making mistakes I know I get angry when I do that and did it but the Enneagram I found was just hugely insightful because it started to make me realize the reason behind the behaviors really and that's what's really interesting so there's there's nine spaces on the Enneagram that are, that are labeled one to nine and I think they all have they all have words attached to them that you know kind of I think number nine I don't know that obviously a lot of the other numbers I'm not that good on because they're not me so I've not really read about them there's also certain numbers that are certainly more inclined to for sport not always but there's um the number three for example there's a lot of threes you'd you'd imagine they're very achievement based very kind of driven to what that and I think that's where I'm a number one and the number one is all about kind of trying to do things right and do things the right way. And so it's very hard to differentiate unless you know the reason behind. So you'll, you'll see someone and you'll go, they're driven towards achievement. They always want to win. They're very purposeful. They've got to be a number three. And it's very hard if you don't know the reason behind that behavior as to why they're trying to win. Are they trying to win to create peace in the household or peace within themselves then that means they could be a number nine then if you but if you're if you're trying to win because that's the right thing to do training because it's the right thing to do then you could be a number one Mm -hmm. and that's where the numbers people can look the same because the behavior the behavior on the surface can look the same Mm -hmm. but the reason behind the behavior is very different that's deep that's very deep so so i so as a number one I started to realize um, that all of my behavior was to do things the right way. And so I guess that's where it links in with me personally, like do it the right way, get the reward. Cause, because, and, and there's, for anyone who is a number one, this all really resonate, but it was, you can, you feel like you've got a little judge on your shoulder all the time that's judging you. And so therefore you can also become quite judgmental of others more so than a lot of other numbers. So sometimes I've heard just from like working with the train, the the trainer that I did, Peter, I think it's the number six that will say, I feel like I've got a committee. So I've got like 10 people on my shoulders and they all chip in and they all voice and they're all giving me opinions. And that's, I just got one person sitting there that feels like they're, they're, judging me and then therefore I can judge others and Mm. what's brilliant about the wisdom of the Enneagram which is the book that I love the most it's got you can go healthy up the levels as well Mm -hmm. so a really unhealthy one is is kind of very judgmental very aggressive snaps quite easily and then you can go up the levels of health and that's also quite hard because you can get two number ones one who's very very healthy and one who's very very unhealthy and the unhealthy one can look more like an eight who is very, who his personality is very aggressive. And like, I think the, the, the players that are an eight would stick out like a sore thumb. They say silly things. They're, they're from the gut. They don't necessarily like thinks, think about what they're saying before they say it. They can be very aggressive. Sometimes you're just cringing because they say, and obviously you would, you would know from watching me on court that I'm not an eight because yeah. I'm also, I'm very controlled and I'm, I'm, I'm very thoughtful with what I say and what I think. Mm. Oh, wow. This, uh, we are going to take a, take loads of rabbit holes down this one. So 
how did you start your journey? What, what age were you at? Um, why did you go into the, I know you said the NLP, but, but can you talk us about the age and then how you began the journey? Was it online? Was it reading books? Yeah, so I'd say I probably got into it about maybe 20, 24-ish, I'd say. Really started to really understand some of the, you know, dipping my toe more and more into the mental side. And I think in part one, I just, I, I obviously said I'd always been interested in that and always understood that the mental side was something that I wanted to work on, reading Steve Backley's book and working with Danny, starting really low level on affirmations. <laughs> I'd have stickers on my mirror where, you know, be like, today's going to be a great day. And <laughs> <You're> you know, <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but at the, at the time, that's how you start with stuff. You dealt, you start really low level and think now I think, gosh, I'm at affirmations, but they can help in their own way. They can flip you from a me- negative to a mental, uh, to a positive state yeah. and, you know, short term, not, not a bad thing. So the Enneagram was because the guy that I was working with, Peter was um, on the, the board of Enneagram, I think globally, like basically one of the very few experts in it. Mm-hmm. And we just used to do all of my mental sessions with him to start were all around the Enneagram. And I would say to him sometimes, are you sure I'm a one? Because, you know, I've been reading and I think this, and he was like, you are the biggest one I've ever met. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so I'm a number one. Yeah, I'll trust you on that. Um, well, that, yeah. that was going to lead me into my next bit, and we'll keep going with this this line of conversation. Like, how staunchly do you stay within that number? Does, does it flex in different situations, a, a work environment, professional environment, home environment? Because, because you know, I'm a little bit more aware of the Myers Briggs type indicator, and I like parts of it, but it's also part of it feels a bit like a horoscope, and you can make it fit into any situation you want. So, so where are you on that in regard to how staunchly you entrench in that number one position? Well, I think firstly, the thing to say as well is, as with all as with all personality typing, you can you can either see it as a boxing in process or of an expanding out process, and with nine enneagram personality type spaces you're obviously going to have an have a have maybe an instinct to go well I don't want to be boxed into one of nine numbers this is rubbish <laughs> but like I said if you can really start to think of it as a way to understand why you behave the way that you do and then just and then just leave it there that, that there isn't there isn't a need to take this too seriously there isn't a need to go the enneagram has number ha, has the answer to everything it doesn't it is a very simple tool to help you understand yourself and why you behave the way you do in certain situations so I've just opened the book actually strangely and it's the nine passions so the passion of each space so obviously number one anger and that's it when I when I am you know in a bad place or you know feeling I I get angry and and I get pent up as well very pent up you go to a number seven Mm. and it's gluttony so you just it's and you and if you're a seven you'll know that and number three is deceitful and that you see when you know someone's a three it's not deceit it's not nasty lies Mm -hmm. they're little white lies because they're an achiever and because they'll just put a little positive spin on it whereas that's not me that's like number ones they do the right thing and the right thing generally obviously we all tell white lies but you know we don't we try not to lie really Mm. um so it's things, it's things like that. And, 
Yes, in answer to your question, the, the space of the Enneagram is um, kind of the shape the, sh- the shape of a circle and it's all it's all linking across so maybe yeah. um yeah. it tells you which the cir- the circle has all of the numbers around it and there's lines going across it like the like a star mm-hmm. and it tells you which which other spaces you're prone to go mm-hmm. into so for a number one for example my my space when I generally am in a bad place can go to a number four and a number four can be um quite negative quite um quite sort of can get quite down on themselves quite quickly Mm -hmm. Um, critical of yourself a little bit yeah and a bit and and moody as well you know really really quite moody Mm. don't don't necessarily feel like you you don't feel like you I don't feel like the true self because I'm not I'm not being my true oneness and then I'd need to read a bit more about the four to refresh my memory. But then when I'm in a good place, I go to a seven and I know funny how I know that one a bit better, but (laughs) that's, that would be the dancing side of me that Mm. we just talked about. It would be the playful side. It would be the adventure. Sevens are generally quite adventurous. They're always people who my brother's a seven actually. And it's strange that he's ended up leaving Lancashire and going to America he, he always was like, I don't, I, you know, traveled more than me, came to watch me in the Commonwealth Games in Delhi and just went around India with his friend, been to Ghana doing charity work. Just generally that seven, they're like free flowing. And the minute they get boxed in with a bit too commit, too much commitment, they're either going to be kind of negative about that or, you know, get quite stressed with it or do something to break out of, of getting themselves into that situation. And I think that when I'm at my best, I become a bit more like a playful seven. Okay. Um, but generally you sit in your number and you go to a, another number, but you always, so for a, for a four, like the number one would have a good side and a bad side and the four has a good side and a bad side. So when I'm in a bad place, I edge to the four, but the bad side of a four. Mm. And when I'm in a good place, I go to a seven, but I go to the good place of a seven. So I don't necessarily get the bad side. That's how I understand it anyway. Um and it's yeah, it's just brilliant. It is. It sounds flipping awesome. I'm I'm going to be diving into this. And and a couple of things that come from what you said there. Firstly, you're holding a mirror up. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yourself massively, of course. You know, you really look at yourself and how you maybe flex along certain situations. But you maybe just touched on it. You can almost turn turn this outwards, and you can look at other people and understand other people how they operate and how they deal with things as well. And, and has that been a process of looking internally and at other people with it? Yeah, I mean, 
there was definitely there was definitely and like I said it's hard to really know what someone's number is Mm. but we spent a fair bit of time when I was trying to chase Nicole really watching videos of her and trying to figure out when she was under stress the behaviors and what number it could edge towards I don't want to obviously go into too much detail but (laughs) um we we looked at that a lot and and then we also tried to look at it from a mental point of view of of how how I could play that to my advantage a little bit and the place that you know maybe she was in mentally when she was playing her best and maybe where she needed to be taken out how she needed to be taken out of that and get her to a point where and and Peter really helped me with that um because it helped me understand myself and of course when you know that about yourself so for example if someone you know they wouldn't obviously know it from an Enneagram perspective but say generally with anger I didn't generally play that well when I was angry sometimes sometimes I did but I'd always get told off with like you've gone walk about for three rallies and I generally get see red and get the rage so I understood that I needed to keep myself quite calm and there's it's a funny story actually because I realized one time I came off court you know, started go ranting at Danny. I, I know what I'm doing now. I've got it. I've just got to do this. I've got to do that. And just give me my drink. Go back on court, lose the game 11-2. Like that literally happened every single time. Wow. So I learned over time that I needed to be quite calm to play my best. So even when I had the urge to come off and go, I've got it now. I'm playing well. I know what I'm doing tactically. I've got it. I'd go sit down get your drink and put it in your mouth <laughs> so you can't talk and just fire. <laughs> breathe yeah exactly just breathe and so it's it's also understanding don't let someone else do that to you either so you start to understand if someone's going to rile you up and get you angry there's a there's a certain type of anger there's an, an anger with determination but then there's an anger of distraction isn't there mm. an anger well, with distraction is 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 a nightmare for me mm. So you did this at 25 and then you obviously formed a lot of your uh, psychology sessions based around it. Yeah. Have you revisited it now as a coach? And do you think it might actually be slightly different or would it would it reinforce the same thing? Where, where are you at in that? Because, you know, 10 years later or so, it could be quite interesting. We were all very different people, aren't we? 10 years yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I generally don't move. I'm still, if anything, I, I think you'd probably agree. You get more rooted into your personality Great. as you get older and quite often a lot of the youngsters that you work with don't have a lot of mental baggage mental issues the 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 older you work with the more mental baggage they've got you start thinking about your childhood how your parents ruined your life I talked (laughs) about the hypnosis that was all about you know my dad poor guy probably didn't do anything but it just compounds over time everyone's got issues everyone's got people they lost to everyone's got people they're jealous of everyone's had work family issues that have popped up that have just created been pushed down pushed under a rug and so I I generally find that if anything else you generally can get a little unless you're aware of your personality you get almost a little bit more unhealthy the older you get and that's why people start going to therapy when they're older isn't it and talking about it so with this stuff it's it's really hard sometimes to talk about this with a youngster because Mm -hmm they haven't actually really fully even settled into their own person. They don't understand themselves fully. This can actually help start that process. Mm. And then in terms of from a coaching perspective, you have to also know the player you're working with and whether or not something like this is going to be a bit too heavy for them. Some, some are really into it. So the, the great thing about the wisdom of the Enneagram book is every chapter 
the, the way that you find out your space typically there's three there's three paragraphs at the start of the book um a b and c and you you read three and you pick a letter and then you read x y and z and you pick a letter and then depending on the matchup it suggests possible numbers for you then you go to the chapter and at the start of every chapter you've got questions that you then rate one to five and if you get a certain score then you're generally that number. And if there's a couple of numbers that are quite high, then you have to read the chapter and try and figure it out. So for a one, me, most people see me as a serious, no-nonsense person. And when all said and done, I suppose I am five. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, it's funny because you start laughing. You go, I always try to be honest and objective about myself, and I'm determined to follow through on my conscience no matter what the cost. Five. (laughs) so already you're like but for you if you're not a one then that's going to be like "Mm, I guess people don't see you people don't see you as serious Jesse so that's Mm. going to be like a two isn't it a one or a two probably yeah that's where your numbers add up and and then you read it and then within the number one type of personality there's different instincts so how you so even within the one you've got three different instincts you've got the self-preservation instinct you've got the social instinct and you've got the sexual instinct and that itself is very a very different look for a number one it's how you present yourself to the world Mm. so again this is where it's really tough with younger athletes because they might not actually know that but this might help them start and then there's also people who you're working with who maybe this is just a bit too deep and they don't want to shine a light on that yet Mm. so you have to you have to know it's how you present it. I, as you can tell, I'm quite excited, quite passionate. I know how much this has helped me. I know it's not the be all and end all as well, but I have to be careful that I don't try and force it on people um, if they're not interested. You made two really big points there that, that I was going to pick up on. Um, yes, I think we've got to remember it, it's a model and it's maybe a suggestion and, and it highlights things, but you know, I get really into these type of things and, and sometimes they can overtake a lot of what I'm doing and I've just really... But, I'm not religious at all, but, but it almost becomes religious. I'm like, I follow yeah, that. It's so fundamental, deep. doesn't it? Mm. And then secondly, like you said, it's, it's not about forcing your ways on others and, and, and knowing, cause that, that, that was my, my question was how many people have you introduced this to? And, and are they, you're younger athletes, you're older athletes. And, and how do you go about opening that door? So, so you can maybe answer that question. And how many people have you tried to expose it to that you are coaching? I try to expose it to people who I feel are kind of looking for answers and that's a vibe that you get isn't it as a coach and as a person and particularly if you've got people staying at your house and the conversation delves a little bit deeper outside of squash or they make certain comments or the squash isn't going well and it could be because of a mental thing because let's be honest this is the mental side is just one part it you know the men you can be as mentally strong as you want if you can't if you're not fit it doesn't matter how mentally strong you are but the same you can be really fit. And if you're not mentally strong, then that's tough too. So mm. it's one part, it's one part of a, of a, of a big jigsaw, the, the mental side in general. And then you, you narrow right down to the Enneagram. So if someone's struggling, particularly with, like I spoke about before, the softening off, the getting off out of your own way, the understanding your personality, why can't I perform as well on court as I can off the court? What are the reasons behind that? It's not as simple as nerves, because then you go, you delve, this is where it's the rabbit hole. Cause you go, well, why are you nervous? They go, well, I'm just nervous. Cause I want to win, but why do you want to win? <laughs> well, I want to win because then that makes me feel good. But why do you want to feel good? Because you win a squash match. Well, because then 
I might prove that I'm a good person. Yeah. Oh, right. So oh. if you win a squash match, you're a good person. So what happens if you don't win a squash match? You're not a good person. No, no. Well, I don't mean that. I just mean, you know, I might well make my mum and dad happy. I'm like, right. So it's important that your mum and dad are happy. And so you win a squat. So you get, you dive, you deep, 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 deep. And you actually, you're not nervous because you want to win the squash match. You're nervous because you think you're not a good person or your mom and dad don't love you if you don't win. That is a heck of a big issue to deal with. And that's where something like this and working with a psychologist, I think, and, or a hypnotherapist, like we talked about in part one, is it, it's like next level stuff when it comes to understanding yourself, because generally it isn't about winning or losing a squash match. It's about what that means to you as a person. And that's where the Enneagram comes in and links in because it's who you are as a person. Mm. So it sounds like you're really touching into like your core beliefs and really are getting down and to, to those bits. And listen, I, I think you've, you've highlighted an amazing thing on that Enneagram and anyone who's listening can really take some, some huge bits of that. And would you say the book is a good place to start? What's the book called? Yeah, definitely. The Wisdom of the Enneagram. It's a thick, heavy book, but you only need to read the beginning of it and then your chapter, maybe, you know, flick through a few chapters. So unless, like you said, as a coaching tool, you're actually using it to work with players. And for me, understanding a player's space, Enneagram space, is really helpful in how you actually coach them too, because for me, I'm a lot about doing the right thing. But if that's not going to tick, that's not going to tick someone's boxes when if they're not bothered about that. For them, it might be about helping someone like a number two is all about giving and helping. So if I'm constantly telling and never allowing them to give me anything as a number two, you're, they're never going to feel good and never. So you have to work with the space as a coach and try and f- figure out how you can get them to perform at their best working within their space. So it's helpful as a coach to understand their personality. So yeah, like I go with the wisdom of the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Richard Riso and Russ Hudson, Don yep. Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. Perfect. Uh- Great recommendation. I'm, I'm going to be jumping onto that. I know a few people particularly come to mind that were actually really interested for this chat. So, so thanks for sharing. And um, I'm not sure if you want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit, entirely up to you, but we, we touched on hypnosis in the first session. You've mentioned it a couple of times here. How are you feeling about like discussing that side of things? Yeah, yeah, totally fine. I mean, yeah. not, it's just that, yeah, another another great tool and a bit, a bit wacky too, isn't it, to be yeah. honest? But I think but like yeah, I said, tell us your journey on hypnosis. Yeah, I think, like I said, in part one, I, there was a big part of, of it that I don't think I actually probably believed sometimes that I was actually under. <laughs> and when you think of hypnosis, you think of the comedy shows, don't you, or something, yeah. you know, look into my eyes, into my eyes, not around the eyes. And it, it, it's not like that. And actually, funnily enough, my brother-in-law, actually had a had hypnosis to help him quit smoking as well and that he said exactly the same but it helps he's never he's never smoked since so it's a massive it's a massive tool if you can look at it like that to maybe unlock a few things and like I said probably we're looking for hypnosis when you've got an issue you know you you need you've got an issue that you want to work through it's not something that a young 19 year old is going to go into and just talk like you would to a psychologist and say I just want to be a better squash player it's about working through some issues and for me a lot of those issues were certainly and it was the same working with Peter were a lot about working through my childhood and and when I say about the delving deeper I, I don't mind saying at all that I wanted to win a squash match because I think we basically got it down to like, when you talk about core belief, I wanted to make 
my family proud. I wanted to mm. feel like I was doing the best that I could. I wanted to feel like I wasn't a failure that, um, that my dad, like my dad was happy with me that winning squash matches made my dad happy, particularly. And a lot of that is working through, through those issues. And why have you got such a big issue with you, your dad and pleasing your dad when you're mid twenties now you're an adult, you've moved out, married, why do you why do you still have this issue with wanting to make sure that you're pleasing your dad? So it's it's working through that. So yeah, you sit into the sit in the room with the guy and mm-hmm. you talk about all this and he'll say what you know what you're trying to do. And for me, a lot of it would always just be, I'm not playing as well on the squash court as I want to be. That was all, you know, the surface stuff was I've got more in me than I want to um that I'm than I'm getting out. And then we, he, we, we would talk and touch upon something and he would he would hear me say something and go right yeah okay got it now and then you'd sit back get your feet out put your arm on a couch and and it and it's a you know kind of supposedly put you under but mm. I always felt like I was there I was yeah. always there mentally and then you never say a word and this is the freaky thing about the hypnosis and this is the thing that got me to believe in because even though I was still there he talked to you and then he would ask you a question and you answered by moving one of your fingers. And sometimes my finger moved when I didn't know it was going to. Wow. And that's what's, that's what was a bit freaky, a bit weird. And so I was almost, and that, and it's a really good skill as well to sort of learn to get out of your own way because uh-huh. the more you thought, the less, the less it worked. You had to try and blank your mind and mm. empty your mind and just let your hand rest and then that was when the weird stuff happened like the subconscious was talking for you yeah. and your finger would move and that would be a yes and that one would be a no and he'd go right so you're saying no and I'm going am I? <laughs> oh, that's so that is like sit quite wacky and so yeah. it just I don't know two things that came to mind there was is it there, there's a little bit of meditation mindfulness there's a little bit of visualization in there as well possibly and yeah, it's just, it's such a curious, curious part. And I've, I've never really looked into it, but it sounds like these were difficult sessions. It sounds like you had to really address some core things, you know, growing up and, and some really tough times with, with your father. And, you know, I think you, you did mention previously, not necessarily on, on this show, but when we talked about having to really impress your father and, and feeling like he's driving you back from tournaments and the conversation in the car was difficult. Are you happy to expand on that and, and talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, dad, dad was just, um, you know, had he had high standards and wanted me to do as well as as well as I could, and he wanted it to be worthwhile giving up his time. Mm-hmm. So when I when I went into the hip, hypnosis, a lot of the stuff, I think generally the hypnosis is you've got an issue as a as a child that manifests itself and then sort of grows and gets bigger over time, and so pretty much the majority of the sessions that I had were always going back to my childhood. So you would say something, he would pick up on something, you would go back, he puts you under, and then he goes, you know, firstly, actually the question of what, were you below the age of 20 when this happened and your fingers would move? And, you know, sometimes I'm pretty sure I was moving my fingers. Sometimes I'm also freaked out about the fact that I didn't. And then they go, were you, were, were you younger than 10? Were you younger than five? And I'm like, my finger's going, oh. yeah. And I'm like, I can't remember when I'm five. And then he goes, right, so you've got a memory now from when you were, let's, let's, you were below the age of five, you've got a memory. What's that first memory that pops in your head when you're ready to open your eyes and tell me? 
And I'm and I literally burst into tears and go, I remember my dad leaving me at the pond when we were feeding the ducks when I was four. And I've literally got I, I don't even remember this memory. And I don't even know to this day if it was really true. But it was like this whole issue about working through feeling like dad was gonna leave me if mm-hmm. I wasn't doing what you know the right thing or there's the Enneagram again the right thing winning squash matches da 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 and I'm literally bawling my eyes out over something that I don't actually know is true but that's the whole thing with the mental side does it matter Mm. if it's true if you work through it and come through the other side and actually go wow I feel like I've been hit for a bus by a day and a half and then then this light this lightness comes this mental shift this cloud lifts and I go we've worked through it and talked through it. And, you know, he's gone, you know, how do you think that your dad felt about that? And do you think that he actually did do that? And I rang my dad up and said to him, you know, when we went to feed the, we used to feed the ducks, right? When I was young, we'd let mum have a lay in on a Sunday and he'd go, yeah. I go, did you ever, I've got this memory. It's popped up. I think I dreamt it. You know, I didn't want to tell him. (laughs) I hope he's not listening to this. (laughs) I said, did I have this dream that maybe you, like at one time you left me and I couldn't see you for a while. He was like, never happened. No. He said, the only thing that might have happened is that, you know, at some point I was, um, you couldn't see me for the trees because obviously you were little, but I was always, you were always in my sight, but okay. sometimes maybe you weren't in mine. And so this whole memory that I'd basically built up became about this young Laura who probably couldn't see the dad, a dad feeling completely abandoned when actually mm-hmm. it, it, that wasn't the way the story panned out and then being able to heal that and then going, oh, dad didn't leave me. And okay. how that then has manifested for 20 years. Wow. This is deep, eh? Wow, this is, thank you for sharing, by the way. I know I know you may be revisiting some quite difficult stuff and, and yeah, geez, the hypnosis is, yeah, anyone who's keen to look at it could, could <laughs> explore it a bit. Um, I want to bring it back a little bit into uh, maybe something more specific, uh, visualizations. We didn't actually get much into talking visualizations in part one. And, you know, firstly, do you practice visualizations and, and what form did this take when you were preparing for your matches and, and entering into it? So could you expand on that? Yeah, um, I think I think visualization wasn't something that I would probably say massively did. I became I was obviously aware of it. And I actually probably did a spell on trying to work on my concentration, which I guess is visualization. I read a book, can't remember which book it was that talked about can you look at a pencil and not think about anything for how okay. you know a minute can you then make that 3 minutes can you then make that 5 minutes and i guess that sort of started to make me aware of concentration and power of concentration and the thoughts that come in so i started i did a little bit of that while i was younger trying to work on you know emptying my mind and keeping it empty mm-hmm. and then i think a lot of my visualization in actual fact was was done thinking about my technique, thinking about my work. It wasn't necessarily, I don't want to say I never did visualization because I think I did, but I don't think that I actually sat down and visualized because for me, it always felt a little bit fake at times because I felt like I I was visualizing a situation that potentially could never really happen Mm -hmm. and it also a bit like the affirmations it always felt like I was forcing a positive that was never going to happen so when visualizing for example a match where 
I'm just supposed to be playing brilliantly every rally. That's not realistic at all. That's not realistic for every shot to go where I want it to go. And then them never to hit a winner and for me never to lose a rally. So then I'd be like, right, well, so I've got, they've got to win the odd rally. Right. And then that didn't seem to right to be visualizing them winning a rally. So, but I, so I didn't sit down and visualize from that, that manner, if that makes sense, but I definitely did visualize in terms of technical work. I I feel like I, I, I play a lot of images in my head. So if DP said to me, this is what I want you to do with your swing thinking about it in the car on the drive home. Obviously I'm not visualizing because I'm driving, but I would just think about it and, and feel it and quite often have a racket in my hand and practice it and really get into the feelings of those things. And then I guess the other thing to link in with visualization would be some of the NLP processes I did where we did it, we did a um, an organic belief change process, which was massive for my career about belief, about a belief change. And that's a lot about visualization about, you know, why do you not believe? What does it look like when you do believe? Did an injury, I think it, I think it was actually a phobia cure process that we switched to be an injury. Coming back from an injury, I was done my ankle and was really struggling to throw my leg into the Mm. front corner because of the injury in the ankle. And um, we did a lot of, we did a lot of visualization, but sat in an NLP process where you see yourself on a movie screen and you play that backwards and then you play it forwards and then you do it in black and white and color and da da da. And that was visualization of this. You see it, you see it going slow in slow mo backwards, then you play it in color, then you play it forwards in slow mo, and then you play it forwards in full full speed. Then all of a sudden you go on court and something's shifted in your mind where you then have you've seen yourself doing it so you can then do it and that massively helped from an injury perspective being able to go on court that's yeah that's really interesting and listen when when you say visualization and and we talk about it it didn't hit the mark for you completely fine i get it some people will go and they'll really hit the mark and 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 something will happen and you again just reinforcing that idea about you know yourself but the one thing that that I want to pick up there and this is where I've, I've started to go through this process of discovery with visualization a bit more is you know what painting these perfect pictures is is so fragile it's it's brittle it's fragile because it's gonna it's gonna break it's 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 unlikely a game of squash is going to be like that so the whole big idea that that I, I'm trying to do some work on now is this idea of negative visualization you visualize the worst case scenario you go there you visit it but then you replace it with the solution and you try go and find the solution and yeah. yes it's still not the real thing it's still you know predicting the future but I think there's a, there's a lot of um, evidence and, and studies starting to go big into this idea of negative visualization because and that seems a little bit more powerful and more more relevant for squash I think yeah and I think that would have made a lot more sense for me like when I when I was watching some skiing I feel like they're unbelievable at visualizing and for a sport like that where they maybe get a couple of runs at a you know a ski race and you're going so fast and round round slaloms and all that sort of stuff then of course you you need to have that visualization you see them don't you on the start line like doing it in their head and their bodies are moving with it of course I absolutely agree that for a, a closed sport where it's get from point a to point b absolutely amazing and I'm sure you'd be rare to find anyone who doesn't do visualization but yeah from a squash perspective I guess I've been trying to say to people look if you are going to do the visualization and you do enjoy it and you feel like it's really good for you I'm not going to have a go at that I've I've given probably 10 or 15 things that are a bit wacky and weird that wouldn't be for everybody but try to think of it as like you know 
can how can you get this technical change in so if you're going to do your visualization and you're struggling with getting a technical change in visualize it over and over again and see yourself repeating that swing change or that movement change and use it from that that matter of fact when it's that is a closed effort of swinging from point a to point b get it done Mm -hmm. and then yeah from that negative point of view i can I would definitely be a, a bit more up for that, like a realistic version of visualization, if you know what I mean. Exactly. How how are you in the middle of a match at eight all and you get a bad refereeing decision is a perfect way to practice how you're going to handle that, which isn't always the case that you don't that you do handle it well. Exactly. <laughs> if you haven't been and, there. Yeah, I'm, I'm really trying to bring in a lot of um you know, the emotions, the thought, the lack of focus. So something happens, something disrupts your rhythm and yeah. all your emotions come to the surface. And I think actually revisiting that before it happens and actually taking yourself to this emotional place yeah. and go, right, I've visited it, but now I'm going to put the solution in place. Because when that is about to happen in a match, I've yeah. rehearsed what I'm going to do to replace it. And I think that there's quite a bit of powerful evidence coming out that that's becoming quite a, quite a big thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to explore that more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it makes so much more sense, doesn't it, that you get a bad call or you make an error at, you know, nine all and you how do you bounce back from that? Because that's really what visualization is, isn't it? It's a tool to bounce back from difficult situations or prepare on how to deal with difficult situations that really? pop up. And that's 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 great. Yeah. So this might link in a kind of a couple of questions here because I'm conscious of your time and you have been amazing and, and people I'm sure are going to be lapping this up. So before we started recording, um, you told me quite an interesting story about Mark Campbell, who I've had the luxury to um, interview, which is great. I'm their physical trainer, EIS. And it might be a little bit linked into um, what you talked about with uh, the dancing thing that you that you <clears throat> prepared for the match, but also linking a little bit of this idea about uh, mental preparation for, for, for match play. So do you want to start with the story of Mark Campbell first and, and see where we can make some links? Yeah, I mean, I think what I was trying to say before was about how Mark was unbelievable, actually, at getting you to perform from a, from a physical perspective but taking quite a lot of the the mental pressure off you. So with me, it was always wanting to do well. I always wanted to better my scores, wanted to give it my all. That's really difficult when you're in the gym and you're setting targets every every week, basically. Um, So I go in the gym and I remember this this particular day, we'd we'd had planned a 12-minute bike ride where you just covered as much distance as you could in 12 minutes. I think I'd done it maybe let's say a month before and it's a horrible horrible session because effectively you've just got to push really hard for from the start to the end and 12 minutes is a long time when you're in pain it's a really really tough session running as well um so we'd gone in I'd done it it was during a training block so obviously we'd done it at the start and you're a bit more relaxed because you're like yeah I'm just setting setting my boundaries and don't want to go too hard because I've got to have to beat it but then the competitiveness comes out and I go into the gym this day and I'm a month down the line with my training and he says right we're going to retest the 12 minute bike ride today and I go oh actually today's not a great day I'm feeling fairly tired had a had a bit of a tough league match last night and you know, maybe we should just leave it till next week when I can give it a proper go. Cause I want to give it, I want to try and beat my score and I want to be fresh. And he just looks at me and goes, it's all right. You know, it's, let's just look at it as a training thing, 12 minute training bike ride before you start your weight session. So no pressure. If you don't beat it, at least we know where you're at. And you know, if you're rubbish, we can always do it again next week. 
you're like, cheers, Mark, brilliant. <laughs> I just wanted him to say, yeah, no worries, we'll do it next week. But in some ways, really happy as well, because I, I'm mm. like, just get it out of the way, get it done, let's let's see it. So off I go up to the bike, and he's, he's sneaky as well with his mindset, because he's given me the, all the numbers of, like, the best females that he's ever worked with that has done it in the gym, this boxer who got this distance, I can't remember what it was, if you can beat that, you'd be the best that you've ever, that I've ever seen do it. I'm like, I'm a squash player. I've got to be better than a boxer. So <laughs> no offense to boxing, she'd knock me out. But um, yeah, so I get on this bike and I'm like, right, all you can do is, you know, Danny and I always have this saying when I was doing court sprints, all you can do is put, them, is put your next foot in front of the other, mm-hmm. you know, and then that one stride leads to two, leads to one length, leads to two lengths, leads to 20, whatever. But all you can do is, can you do the next stride? Yes, I can. We'll do the next stride. And that would, he would quite often stand on court sprints and watch me do sessions and go, you know, can you do the next stride? Come on, next stride, next stride, next stride. And you get more out of yourself. So I thought that's it. Just break it down into minutes. Off you go. Got my headphones on. I'm not looking at anyone. He sets me off and and off I go for this 12 minutes. And then I'm just feeling a bit kind of like, you know, the first three or four minutes is going to be okay because you're fairly fresh and you go in and you, you've got your average. So, so he's told me the average watts for this boxer. So I know I've got to keep my level above this watt, this level of wattage to beat this boxer. Mm. So the first three or four minutes, I'm smashing it. Obviously, you've got to be way above the average watts because you know you're going to drop off a cliff. Mm. So I'm smashing it. I'm like this, it, and then I just start to hit a wall and slowly but surely the watts are dropping. And I've got my music on and this song just kicks in that's I've never heard before. And the word, it was the words, they're they're really loud, the words, and it's called Supergirl and it's by um, Anna McLab, I think. I'd never heard it before. And I just literally put that song on repeat for the rest of the 12 minutes. And it was like, super, you are a super girl. You got home late last night, but you're a super girl. All these words just made sense. And I'd been at a league match. I'd got home last night late. And I was like, I can do it. I can do it. I'm a super girl. And I got off and I smashed it. I smashed my own score and I beat this boxer's score, which is what, you know, was amazing. And I guess when you talk about, obviously we talked about this before we came on air, but it was really about how then that impacted my belief for my squash because, Mm -hmm. From that day, I realized that there was more mental push in me to get more out of myself, even when I wasn't feeling great, Mm -hmm. because to be able to put in that performance, I mean, Mark literally was, he was like, you're lying. You're literally lying to me. I'm never going to believe you again. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. I swear I wasn't. I'm tired. tired." He was like, this is ridiculous. Um, And so I think that that was what I took from it. That was, you know, if I'm not feeling great on a match day or if I've had a hard match the day before, I've had a late night or if I'm feeling a bit fatigued that I can actually still raise it for that match that day because of knowing that I did do that day. Yeah. And while it links to what we started talking about, self-belief and cultivating that side of you. And I believe that that song made quite a quite an impact on you later on as well. Did you use it often for match preparation? Yeah, I still I probably would still stick it on now if I needed to get through a session and it's going to always carry memories, memories with me. But I had a playlist that I warmed up to for probably I think probably from about 2015 that very rarely changed. The odd song got added if it really but that I could put that playlist on now and something in me would be getting a bit twitchy because it's my warm-up playlist and it was just on repeat every single match for every single tournament. And that was that was on it from that day. And 
yeah you, it's for, like you know memories with music and smells and things like that I, I would get a twitch I'd be like oh I don't want to listen to this playlist because it's got so many good and bad memories attached to it yeah and it's fascinating that's again linking to the brain and why we're having these conversations today <laughs> there's a little bit of me that links to visualization and you've replayed that moment and and, and you know you're strengthening the synapses and the nerves in the brain and yeah, all of these things that great. go into it and that so but I think I think a good place for us to start to wrap this up is is something amazing that's coming up in in your life we touched on it in part one but let's have a, a good chat about about your amazing book coming up so frame it up for us tell us tell us what it's about tell us can you tell us the title first of all Yeah, so the book is going to be called All In, and it's basically my autobiography and runs the length of, yeah, when I started, obviously, I've talked a lot about my dad, there's a couple of fairly harsh stories in there to start, I had to tone them down, figured it thought he might never speak to me again. So I toned them down in, um, in terms of, you know, and actually, like I said before, a really good kind of process of writing the book was the the editor said to me, why don't you actually ask your dad's perspective on this story? Because if you're going to put it in the book Mm -hmm. and it's quite a harsh story, then you need to make sure like, let's put his perspective in as well. Cause I have a good relationship with my dad now. Um, I always, I've always had a good relationship with my dad, but there is definitely kind of probably the better, the better it's gone better as I've got older, which is a great thing. Sometimes that can be the other way around. Mm. So there's a couple of stories in there about when I was a junior and spoke to him and got his perspective, which was really interesting. And so that's in there as well. Um, the book itself has got, yeah, guest chapters from Mark Campbell, from Danny, from DP, from Peter, who we've talked about a lot. Like he, he touches upon the organic belief change, the Enneagram, how they helped me over my career, what I've done. And they they all read their own chapters in the audio book, which is brilliant. And we actually have an audio, like the question, we have a Q&A with each guest in, in the audio book. We, because of lockdown, it's been a struggle. We've also got Jade and Caroline in there from a, from a physio and fasciotherapy point of view, my manager, Faye. And hoping to get them still to record their own, but some really good guest chapters in there. And then the book sort of just runs my career. I mean, it's brilliant. This chat talks a lot about, you know, how I started out on tour, the a bit of the invisible pecking order that goes on. How do you all of a sudden get from that? I don't really believe to I believe because at some point to believe that you that you can win you have to believe that you can win but to believe you can win you have to have sometimes done it which is the hardest bit so you know getting through that how do you how do you do that goes through winning the worlds and the british open and then getting to world number one and and then into my retirement i guess so yeah just the full story it's it's you know squash based obviously but hopefully a lot a lot more than that from a a woman in sport perspective and yeah, really excited. So it's going to be out on audio book, Kindle and paperback with maybe some um, signed hardbacks available in lim- limited edition. And there'll be a, yeah, it's available to pre-record, uh, pre-order um, hopefully from my website. So cool. yeah, I'm sure we can get a link out there to order that pre-order from the start of April for release on the 1st of June. Definitely. I'm, I'm just a bit curious to stay with us a bit. How was the process of writing, jumping into that? And, and what, what did you like most about the, the journey of, did you have to learn a bit new of a skill set, the, the audible audio recording as well? Talk, talk to us about that process. Yeah. So I don't know if this is, yeah, if this is the done 
thing or not for most people, but I've got diary upon diary from pretty much the start of my career. A lot of them are, are just feelings after results and tournaments. So there's a lot of diary entries in the book as well. So that took me months and months of just delving through diaries and stories and think key things that had happened, typing them all up for them to go in. That was, you know, kind kind of nice. And the reason that I did it, I, I always thought if I can do this, it was not from the very, very start of my career, unfortunately, but from about midway through, I probably got a stack of about 10 diaries where I've just talked about my feelings and results and how I feel after wins, how I feel about after losses. And with the thought of, if I ever write a book, these all come in really handy, which obviously they have done. And there's some stories in there, you know, Danny, Danny, the start of Danny's book, he tells a story about how we, we had this huge bust up after the worlds in Sharm El Sheikh and, you know, the diary entry from there is, is in it and things like that. And actually, strangely, I don't even mention the argument. I just mentioned how terribly, <laughs> terrible I played and then went off on a massive rant about how pathetic person that I was. And um, so that's all in there and all the diary entries and stuff right up to the end. And yeah, just so that itself has been quite therapeutic, getting all them out, digging it out. It's been a long process, a lot of talking, um, obviously wrote it in conjunction like with Rod rod gilmore and eleanor preston edited it um to to kind of really make it feel a bit more like it was me as a woman which is which is great and they've both done an amazing job so it was kind of therapeutic and yeah i'm excited the audio book itself was yeah do what do you do do you pay someone with a really nice neutral accent to come in and <laughs> you know do the book or do you just put me in there with my Lancashire accent and go for it much and more I, think it, I, love it. I, I personally just on that so I did jump in um, all the audiobooks I love audiobooks but I actually seek out the author who reads their own book I think there's something special about that so I'm really glad to hear you've done that I absolutely agree. And that's why I went for it. I thought there's probably going to be about hopefully maybe 10 or 20% of people that go, I can't listen to this. She's a nightmare (laughs) with her accent. But there'll also be a lot of people who will go, it feels real because it's you. And the best, one of the best autobiographies I read who read her own book for, for a high profile person was Maria Sharapova. And, and hearing it in her voice and the, the book's great anyway. I don't know if you've read it. I loved her autobiography. But the fact that she sat down and gave that time to the book just makes you actually want to buy the book even more because she, she's given herself. I've already I haven't finished audiobook, the audiobook recording yet because it's um, because of lockdown. But that's quite obviously with the with the audiobook, it can be done that day and out. Mm. So we're just finishing wrapping up a few ends of that. Obviously, that will be done by the time it's released uh, this podcast release. But it's basically you know, just settling down into a rhythm and really feeling like, you know, kind of you're getting into that rhythm and you're speaking quite clearly and putting a little bit of just a tiny little bit of passion into those points that really mean a lot to you or the way a, a word is said that someone who's reading it for you just can't know that. So yes, I'm excited. The, nuance, the nuances of, of, of reliving those moments. And this sounds absolutely brilliant. I, I love the amount of depth and detail you've gone to look at your training diaries, taking yourself down memory lane. And I, I can imagine there was lots of bits going, completely forgot about that and oh what a cool thing to go and relive in that so it sounds like what you've put on paper and also audible is is is, is such a deep dive you, you've you've taken and again i love you know uh sports autobiographies and stuff but it really sounds like you've gone 
to the real depths, gone to the well and put so much in there. So, man, I am going to be ordering that very quickly as soon as it comes out. And, I, you know, I hopefully speak for a lot of people. It's, it's going to be the same in a way. And all I can do is wish you a huge amount of luck with it because it sounds it's so insightful. I, I can imagine it's going to be one of those books that this is the biggest compliment. It might frustrate me because I don't think I'll be able to listen to it from start to finish. Because when I get a good book like that, I'm, I go through it so slowly. I take notes. I then do some lessons on those. And actually, sometimes I just want to listen to a book from start to finish. But for me, it sounds like this book is going to be one of those that I'm going to sit with and come back to and take notes and digest and that. So in, in, in closing, just remind us the release dates, where we can get it, when's it going to be available, how all the platforms. So give a good shout out for that. Yeah, well, firstly, I hope that I hope it's as good as you're making out because it's so hard to write a book. And when I'm talking on this podcast, getting stories over is so easy. And you talk about stories, it's so hard in a book to link everything together and also to get everything out because some, you know, you're reading it, you don't want it to be an encyclopedia. It's got to be wrapped up in certain amount of pages. So yeah, I hope I hope I've done everything justice. And yeah, the book will be available to order from my website for sure. Amazon, definitely. We're just in the process of getting everything nailed down with Audible and yeah, Kindle, uh, which will be on Amazon as well. Mm-hmm. We're currently in the process of negotiating with Waterstones. So watch this space for that. But the pre-order will definitely be available from my website from the beginning of April and from Amazon and my website released fully on the 1st of June, which is, yeah, exciting. Amazing. And yeah, as I said, when, when these podcasts come out, it's going to be linked in very close to that. So hopefully anyone who's listening at this moment is either getting it or pre-ordering at the time, or if it's in reflection, doing it from there. Um, listen, Laura, there was probably another three or four questions I had in regard to goal setting and Shabini that lost there and a bit more mental match play. But look, I, hopefully that means that we can open the door for future conversations because I just think there's so many angles we can go down. I've set up a chat with Danny again, kindly. And, and you know, I think there's a whole, ra- I think there's like nine messages I got a reply to him about that he sent yesterday um, but it's been an absolute delight again and I've just again enjoyed going with this deeper dive hope you've had a good time of it um, and listen thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it great yeah it's been fun it's nice to delve deep and back into some of those memories so thanks for having me and buy the book everyone <laughs> buy the book a good recommendation for both of us presence process persistence the essence of squash mind 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmarked.